Hello, church. Now it's time for the ministry of God's Word when we listen actively to the Scriptures and to the Spirit of God. Today's sermon is titled Eternal Investment, and it's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. This is a part of our series uh, that we've called God's Household, where we're studying through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, what comes to mind when you hear the word investment? Most likely, ideas like pension or retirement fund, stocks or bonds, or buying real estate pop into our heads. Investments typically involve money. You put in a specific amount of money at a moment in time in order to grow or generate more money after a period of time passes. For investing, there's always some level of risk. Usually, the higher the risk, the greater the returns. But what if I were to tell you that there are some things that we can invest our money into that will promise eternal returns without any risk of loss at all? Does that sound too good to be true? In this case, it's true. And the only real cost to this is trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, having this faith that is exercised in how we live and where we allocate our money in our lives during our lives on earth. This is what Paul actually talks about here today in our passage of Scripture. We are in the concluding section in the letter of 1 Timothy. This was a letter written by Paul back in the first century to help his beloved disciple Timothy. Uh, Timothy was called to lead the church in the city of Ephesus. And in this section, Paul already shared with Timothy a very stern warning about the dangers of loving money. And he gave a stiff charge to keep fighting the good fight of faith, of upholding the gospel and sound doctrine, and also living it out. Now he goes back to the, to the issue of how wealthy Christians were to handle their money in light of this warning in charge. So let me go ahead and read 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 now. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Amen. This is God's word. Here's the one thing from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. This is the main message for all of us to take to heart today. Invest into your hope in God and the works of God. Invest into your hope in God and the works of God. And so we'll dig deeply into these two ways to invest. First, invest into your hope in God. And second, invest in the works of God. And I'm going to highlight two lessons in each of these two main points. Um, wherever you are right now, can we pause and can we lift up one more prayer for our hearts to listen to and receive God's word at this time? Heavenly Father, in this preaching moment, may your words reverberate into our hearts and minds 
breathing life into us today. May it keep echoing in our conversations with each other among life groups, families, and friends. May the investments we decide to make today bring glory to you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's now start with my first main point. See verse 17. Invest into your hope in God. Here in this part of the passage, Timothy was to charge Christians that were rich to keep their hopes set on God. Uh, Here's lesson number one. Riches tempt people to be haughty and to set their hopes on riches. Paul's second-to-last message for Timothy and the church in Ephesus was directed to the rich in the present age. If if verses 3 through 10 were a warning about the sinful desires of getting rich, then verses 17 through 19 are words for those in the church who are already rich. These were people during the first century in the Roman Empire who were wealthy because they owned land. They were able to rent out their lands to others who farmed them. Perhaps some of these people were the masters for whom slaves worked. And he had already addressed um, Christian slaves in verses 1 and 2 of this same chapter. There was also a growing merchant class at that time as well. They were a lower social class than landowners, but they were still quite rich at that time. And Paul wanted Timothy to charge them, these rich Christians, in some specific ways. And and this sounds very stern as he was to command, as he was to order them regarding this. And it was stern because the love of money was really, really dangerous. As the apostle explained previously, those who desire to be rich get ensnared in this deadly trap that would lead them to ruin and destruction, and even abandonment of their faith in Jesus Christ. So let's make sure we understand the gravity of this warning. The stakes are very high for us as well. The first specific way that that rich Christians in Ephesus were to be charged was not to be haughty. That's H-A-U-G-H-T-Y. And haughty is sort of an old-fashioned word that simply means to think of yourself as better than others. Oftentimes when people have a lot of money, they start to think of themselves as better than other people around them. They think that they're smarter than others. They think that their time is more valuable than other people's time. They think that they are entitled to privileges and advantages over others. They think that their problems are bigger than others' problems. This is haughtiness. Haughtiness is a very real temptation for people who are rich. Why is this bad? Money is a very human way to establish a pecking order in our society. The term pecking order describes the social organization of chickens. It's a hierarchy where the most important chickens at the top of the pecking order can bully the chickens below them without fear of retaliation. It's where the least important chickens at the bottom of the pecking order get bullied by everyone else. And we can see this 
pecking order so clearly in our society. This is how our society runs, isn't it? But the pecking order goes against the very heart of Jesus and the gospel. In fact, Jesus' harshest words were often for the religious leaders of the day, those who lived by this pecking order and oozed this kind of haughtiness in their lives. In contrast, Jesus humbled himself and served. Haughtiness, you see, isn't just bad. It goes against everything that Jesus is about. The second specific way that the rich Christians in Ephesus were to be charged was not to set their hopes on the uncertainties of riches. This is ironic here, isn't it? Usually people tend to think of riches as giving greater certainty and greater security in life. This was certainly what was ingrained in me when I was growing up. You see, my parents were immigrants who moved from South Korea to the United States. And and for our family, what was instilled in me was that the key to life is security. And security comes from having money. Now, there is a bit of truth to this. Having money does create some stability and certainty in life. Not having money does create instability and uncertainty in life somewhat. But Paul clearly says that hedging all of our bets on money to give us certainty in life is a terrible bet. Why is it bad? It is because money is unreliable. Money is not the right thing to put our greatest hope in. Hope in, As Paul wrote earlier in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Remember, we can't take it with us after we die. This would be a bad investment of our hope. Jesus shared a parable about a rich fool. This was in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. This rich man owned owned land, and it produced a lot of crops. And he decided that he would tear down his current barns and build bigger barns to store all that he had earned. He thought to himself that now he could relax and he could party for the rest of his life because he had all these riches stored up for himself. But God looked at this rich man and called him a fool. He called him a fool because at any time this man's life could end and his riches will be left unused. You see, they might be rich at this present age, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of their standing before God and their impact upon eternity. Brothers and sisters, I am afraid that many of us have this same mindset as this rich fool. Let's heed this warning and look carefully at the mirror into our own hearts right now. Haughtiness is so ugly before God. The idolatry of money is a dead end that leads certainly to ruin and and destruction. So this is lesson one. Riches tempt people to be haughty and to set their hopes on riches from verse 17a. Now here's lesson two. 
enjoy all that God provides, which reinforces setting our hopes on Him. In the second half of this verse, Paul explained that the only way that people could set their hopes on uh, properly is God Himself. He is worthy to set our hopes on. If riches only lead us down a path of haughtiness and misplaced hope, then God certainly leads us down a completely different path, that of true humility and well-placed hope. The reason, Paul said it is, it is because He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so I want to meditate on this to let it soak into our hearts and minds today. First, God richly provides. God is generous towards His children. God provides what we need, not in a stingy, minimal sort of way, but by knowing exactly what we need to make us truly content. This is the heart of a parent towards their children, isn't it? Uh, Listen to what I mean. My children are still young. They're ages 12, 10, and 8. And they are still dependent on us as parents. As of now, they cannot buy or make food for themselves. And so they still rely on Nikki and me 100% for all the food that they eat. But we are not stingy. We don't let them starve. There's a lot of great food uh, to eat in our house. We keep our fruit drawer packed. The fridge is full of, of meat and milk. The pantry is full of snacks. We make healthy and tasty meals with plenty of proteins and veggies three times a day, uh, seven days a week, 365 days a year. You see, as parents, we richly provide food for our kids. And if we, as sinful people, do this for our kids, how much more does our Heavenly Father richly provide us with all that we need? Second, God provides us with everything to enjoy. Timothy was dealing with false teachers who were not allowing people to get married or to eat certain foods. And this was way back in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And somehow this was leading people to depart from true faith in Jesus alone for salvation. And Paul taught instead that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And so, for the believers in the first century, as they searched the scriptures to inform them, and as they prayed and received guidance and conviction from the Holy Spirit, they could receive the gifts of marriage and good food with clear consciences. Paul seems to revisit this here when he wrote in verse 17b that God richly provides what we need in life and, he, and that He gives His children everything to enjoy. Going back to the illustration of parenting children, not only do we want uh, to richly provide for our kids, our heart as parents is that we also want them to enjoy everything we give them. 
Now, they might want some stuff that we refuse to give them regularly and in large quantities like candy and sweets and other junk food. It, and it, as a parent, it is so incredibly rewarding to see them not only grow to understand that junk food is not good for them, but also to see them really enjoy the nutritious food that we do provide for them. They begin to appreciate the food that we give them. Remember that just before this, Paul warned them sternly not to be haughty and, or, and not to put their hope in, in the things that they had. But what we need, but we also need not to go to the other extreme. In fact, in life, we can thankfully recognize that what we have in our lives are all provided for by the Lord, and we can enjoy them in our lives. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We can enjoy uh, all things in life apart from sin. We can recognize that it is the Lord who provided them and we can use them all to the glory of God. When we see things this way, what it does is it actually reinforces that our Heavenly Father cares for us and grows, strengthens our conviction that He is the only one that we need to set our hopes upon. You know, I think about the Netflix show Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. I think that this can really highlight this, my point here. You know, while I think that Marie Kondo's worldview is a bit on the Zen mystical side, I think that it also can be redeemed by Christ. I thought it was so profound, for example, to see how much stuff people actually have and how most of that stuff actually doesn't make people happy at all. Actually, it's plain to see when we watch this show how hoarding actually makes people's lives miserable. Collecting all this stuff makes people miserable. I think it's a really healthy idea as well to sit down in the rooms of my house and thank God for what I have and the life that happens in each of the rooms, in my bedroom, in my living room, in my kitchen, around our table. We can be thankful, even though we, we don't have an extravagant amount of stuff. I am thankful for what the Lord gives us and the life that we have in our homes. I think it's a very healthy idea to put my hands on my possessions thanking God for the pieces that spark joy and giving away all the other stuff that don't and giving it to people who actually need it. And through these kind of awkward exercises, we can remember that our hope is not ultimately in our possessions, but in God Himself. This is the godliness with contentment that Paul has been talking about throughout this letter. This is the purpose of regular times to rest in the Lord, isn't it? The fourth commandment in, in the book of the law in the Old Testament was to observe the Sabbath. The purpose of this was to create a rhythm of work and rest that set aside one day to do no work, to remember how the Lord had created the, the entire world perfectly in six days, 
and, and to appreciate how he provided for his people faithfully and also to cultivate dependence and trust in the Lord. You see, having regular rhythms of work and rest, daily, weekly, and yearly, do our souls good because it allows us to enjoy what God provides for us and and to set our hopes on Him properly. This is what our daily times with the Lord in worship, in the Word, and in prayer is supposed to do for us. This is what weekly times to gather together in life group and Sunday celebration as a church are for. It's to remind us who God is. It's to remind us that God has provided and has cared for us in every possible way in our lives. This is what um, yearly holidays are for, like, like how we celebrated Easter last week. So this is lesson two. Enjoy all that God provides, which reinforces setting our hopes on Him. And this is from verse 17b. So let me, let me include the life application for this first part here. It's this, plan rhythms of rest to enjoy and appreciate the Lord's providence in your life. Try it. Just sit and be with the Lord in your home, thinking about what He has allowed you to enjoy in life and how He has taken care of you. During these times, also ask the Holy Spirit to help you to see the haughtiness and misplaced hopes in your life. May these times with the Lord fuel present and future hope in Him as you do this daily, weekly, and even yearly. And so we've seen the importance of investing into our hope in God. Now let's look at the second main point of today's sermon. See verses 18 and 19 here? Invest into the works of God. Here in this part of the passage, Timothy was to charge Christians that were rich to invest in what God valued. Lesson three is this. Christians are to invest themselves into good works, especially generosity. Paul continued by instructing Timothy in his charge to rich Christians here in verse 18. They are to do good. They were to be characterized by doing good. This godliness, which has been a running theme throughout this letter, godliness can be defined, and I've been defining it over and over again, as faith in the biblical gospel that is synchronized with life, the ways a person behaves, makes decisions, and treats other people. As Martin Luther put it, it is by faith alone that a person experiences God's salvation, but this faith is never alone. Real faith always produces the fruit of, of, good work, of doing good. Let me connect this with the previous verse. Paul warned the church about the temptations of haughtiness and setting their hopes in their riches. Their hope in God was reinforced as they enjoyed all that God had richly provided for them in their, uh, as their perfect Heavenly Father. And in light of this, Paul specified what Christians who were rich were to aspire for. They were to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So related to this, when I think about the effects of God's salvation, new spiritual birth, and faith in the gospel, I can't help think, I can't help but think about the first church in Acts chapter 2. The church was birthed after Peter preached 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 people believed in Jesus that day. Then in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it described the church. These disciples of Jesus devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship that they shared. They experienced many signs and wonders. And I think that the most extraordinary miracle, actually the only supernatural thing mentioned specifically in Acts 2, 42 through 47, was the generosity that was expressed among the disciples, most notably among those who had money. They were, to, they were together. They shared everything in common. Those with extra sold what they had and gave it to those who needed it. They shared meals. They shared life together, regardless of the different social statuses of these brothers and sisters in Christ. This is truly a miracle of God. Those who were rich in this present age knew that their money was actually not theirs, but the Lord's. And as citizens of God's kingdom, they were to know that they were to steward it faithfully. When the Holy Spirit gave them this new spiritual birth and faith in the biblical gospel, what happened was they were set free from from such haughtiness and false dependencies on money for hope and, and certainty. This biblical gospel can be summarized in this way from 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's actually no coincidence that this scripture was written also within the context of generous giving. In sum, what I just read says that Jesus Christ forsook all of his rights as king of the universe. He came to earth as a lowly human being. He was accursed and crucified as a criminal. But it was through Jesus losing everything, including his very life, that he redeemed his people. He suffered the penalty for their sins. He reconciles us with God. He paid our way to be children of God and heirs of this amazing kingdom. You know, all religions in the world recognize the value of good works. But there, is, there are two major differences between the biblical gospel and all other religions. First, there is an understanding of ability. In all other religions, people have expectations and standards upon them to fulfill. But in the biblical gospel, we are confronted by the by our own moral bankruptcy and inability to do good or to do enough good to match God's requirements. We can only receive grace from God. And that grace changes us now to be able to do good works. God's grace changes us so that now we're able to do good works. Second, there's a difference of motivation. In all all other religions, doing good works are meant to gain merit from God. But in the biblical gospel, doing good works, things like generosity, are motivated by the overflowing riches of grace that we have received from God. And thus, we now do good works as a response 
of gratitude for the grace that we have received. So this is lesson three. Christians are to invest themselves into good works, especially generosity. And that's from verse 18. Now here's the last one, lesson four. Investing in good works helps us stay focused on that which is truly life. We have a heavenly Father who provides richly for us with everything that we need in life, in heaven, in earth, and in heaven. And in light of this biblical gospel, we are able to see money for what it is, not as an indicator of value or, indi- or, or as an idol, not as a way of gaining security in life. The gospel frees us from these temptations and we are able to be generous and ready to share what we have. And by the way, I love this. That idea of ready to share means it's, it's intentional, it's, it's thought out. And this was Paul's point to those rich Christians in the church of Ephesus and to us today. This kind of generosity and readiness to share has a very important effect, according to Paul. When people are doing good like this, they are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Paul is undoubtedly referring to the Lord's teaching in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, when Jesus said this, Do not lay up your treasures, uh, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Jesus said here not to store up treasures on earth, things that will perish, things that can be taken away. Instead, they were to store up treasures in heaven. In other words, they were to invest themselves into the stuff that really matters in God's eyes. Things that would be impactful for eternity. What kind of things are treasures in heaven? As it's been said before, the Bible presents the truth that God doesn't value everything the same. He doesn't value the things the way that we value things sometimes on earth. Wisdom is more valuable than rubies. Fear of the Lord is more valuable than great wealth. Righteousness is more valuable than money. A good reputation is more valuable than riches. Faith in God is more valuable than gold. And salvation is more valuable than gaining the whole world. These are all the things that matter to God and that are valuable in heaven. And this is why, as Paul has been writing, as, as Paul has been writing about in this letter, sound biblical doctrine is needed. We need to understand how God views and values things in our world. In our preaching and teaching, we try to talk a lot about biblical theology of topics like worship, friendship, work, singlehood, marriage, and missions, and a bunch of other stuff. There's a lot of other worthwhile areas of doctrine that we have to form biblically as well. But since Paul was talking, about rich, uh, was talking to rich Christians here, let's briefly talk about what the Bible says about money. God owns everything in the universe. And so that includes our money, possessions, and time. In fact, our entire lives are His. God gives human beings the responsibility to handle His resources then faithfully for His glory and towards His kingdom. He has entrusted people with money to take care of our own needs and the needs of our own families, earning enough to cover our daily needs. 
He has also entrusted us with money to give to the local church, to take care of those who take care of the church, and to take care of those in need within the spiritual family. Lastly, God entrusted us with money to give to other worthy causes, like those in need, other ministries, and missions work. And all of these things are actually a necessity to give to. He wants His people to be strategic, putting putting to work God's money for His causes, as the Lord Himself taught in the parable of the talents. Strategic use of God's money means being generous at times, like if there's a a natural disaster or uh, some emergency help is needed for a situation that somebody faces. And it needs to be sacrificial at times, like choosing to not upgrade to the latest tech gadget. And this is all for the cause of Christ. This is how we can be generous and ready to share. And I want you to listen carefully to this part. Investing like this is so good for our souls. As Paul says, these endeavors are a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, the people of God are strengthened in their convictions and hope regarding heaven, heaven being their final destination. In their current lives on earth, when God's people are generous and ready to share, storing up treasures, in, storing up treasures into what God values, the benefit is, is that all this helps to keep fresh in their hearts and minds what is really important in life. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, this photo was, went viral this past week because it shows the great social divides in our city that we often simply ignore. But there are many in our church who are involved in missional initiatives to fight for justice and mercy by volunteering their time, treasure, uh, time, energy, and money um, into these, into, uh, to demonstrating and declaring the gospel to people in need. We praise God for that. And I really believe that investing in these endeavors are a blessing to us, to those who serve, to those who are involved, to those who are on the front lines of this, because it keeps fresh that there are very real people out there who are precious in God's sight, who live in desperate situations. It keeps fresh the gratitude for what God has provided for us personally and the reality that that maybe that extra stuff that we sometimes want isn't really what we actually need and we actually don't want it anymore. It keeps fresh that we are, are to be faithfully prepared for the day when Jesus will return and make all these injustices right. Amen? As Paul said in verse 19, this is a good foundation for the future. The storing up of treasure in heaven, kingdom treasures, may create some stresses in our lives, but it also makes us long for the Lord to come and to take us home. Just as generations of Christians have cried throughout history, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So this is lesson four here. Investing in good works helps us stay focused on, which, on that which is truly life. 
And that's from verse 19. Let me conclude with the life application for the second part. Ask the Spirit to convict you about good works, especially generosity, to invest in. I'm so often encouraged by how people in our church demonstrate the gospel at work in their, in their lives by giving so generously to our church, benevolence fund, to many individuals in need, and to ministries and missions work. And my intention is not to guilt people to give more, but actually it is to charge us to continue to invest into the works of God because we love Jesus and because we want the name of Jesus to be lifted up. Also, because we know that it is such good medicine for our souls to keep fresh what is truly valuable in life during our days on earth. And so we've seen the importance of investing in the works of God as well as investing into our hope in God. What we'll do now is we'll go back to our live Zoom service to wrap up things together as a church. God bless you all.